Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon. Today, we are beginning a mini-series titled Finding Hope in Dark Places, and Caleb Thompson will be speaking on Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through 19. In this sermon, we see that the dark days we are living in now aren't that different from the days that Habakkuk was writing in. Our attention is brought to the five woes, which are unjust economics, inhumane labor practices, irresponsible leadership, and idolatry. We know that God opposes these, but are warned not to take the place of the judge. Instead, we are to look to Jesus, who doesn't just suspend his right to judge. He takes upon himself all the judgment that we give out and all the judgment we deserve. He receives us how we are, and he shares his righteousness with us. Well, as Murray uh, mentioned, we're starting a little mini-series this morning. It's going to be in two parts, and we've called it Finding Hope in Dark Days, Wisdom from Habakkuk. And the first argument we could have would be how to pronounce his name. Um, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you can say whatever you want. I discovered actually no one knows how to say it, so you're free to just... uh, pronounce it however you like. We're going with Habakkuk, so that's our official position, but you can can argue with me later. Uh, Normally in the fall, we start out with a shorter series, and this series kind of helps us regroup uh, from the summer months, because in the summer, we get a bit disconnected. You know, we're traveling, camping. We're not around as much, and so over the summer, Susan and I were thinking and praying, what is it we need to hear as we come back together this fall. And something that we noticed and felt was this reality that we find ourselves living in difficult days. And over the summer, I listened to a a Tim Keller sermon on, it was called Waiting and Living by Faith, and it was all about Habakkuk. Uh, And it turns out that a lot of the teaching was around how do you handle living in difficult days or evil days? And it felt relevant. I was listening to a podcast uh, not too long ago, and there was a doctor uh, who studies life expectancy, and he was talking about life expectancy. And he was talking about how previously life expectancy was increasing year over year. It was going up. And we can understand that because of all the advances in uh, medical technology, uh, quality of life, everything was improving. Uh, until the last few years, it's actually started decreasing again. And he said this is primarily because of deaths of despair. Uh, And the three categories he had were uh, alcohol-related death, uh, a drug overdose, and suicide. So something is happening uh, in our culture. Uh, These deaths of despair are are increasing, and life expectancy is actually decreasing again. Uh, This is very tragic. I don't read the news all that much, but I glance at it enough to notice the word crisis comes up a lot. Refugee crisis, opioid crisis, housing crisis, economic crisis. On top of all these crises, we have a lot of confusion about identity in our culture, about sexuality and gender. And then there's a lot of division and even hatred around these things. 
Our society is becoming really polarized. We can't seem to agree on much. And we certainly seem to be losing the ability to agree and still be friends. Or disagree and still be friends. Sorry. <laughs> I remember back in the day, uh, I was talking about religious views with some of my coworkers. I was working in the industrial sector. And uh, we were talking about religious views. You know, someone would say, oh, I'm an Anglican, or oh, I'm a Buddhist, or I'm Hindu. Uh, and one of the guys just came out and said, I'm a pedestrian. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Like, he's just trying not to get run over by all the religious people. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but that's pretty much how I feel in our culture right now. I think I'm a pedestrian. I'm moving a bit slower than everyone else, and I'm just trying not to get run over. Here's a picture that captures it. Has anyone ever driven through Atlanta? Anybody? Okay, I have had this privilege. I think it took one or two years off of my life. Uh, it's eight lanes of chaos. Uh, it's absolutely insane. But this, to me, is how our culture feels a little bit right now. As a follower of the way of Jesus, I feel like I'm kind of standing there in the middle um, trying to be true to Jesus and say, I feel like that's where Jesus is. He moves a little slower, um, a little bit less certainty. And in the midst of this chaotic situation, you have people on every side of every argument who are crying out for justice. They're all crying out for justice. And sometimes I think it's tempting to dismiss these cries for justice as just anger and hostility at people on the other side of the argument. But I think it'd be cynical to dismiss the cry for justice outright because I think people on every side of every issue are tapping into something very real. The world is desperately broken and it's full of evil and it's full of injustice. And it turns out the prophet Habakkuk lamented living in days just like this and his major question fits right in with the prophetic tradition. His major question is, where are you, God? Let me read to you Habakkuk's first prayer of lament, and we'll see how it resonates. This is Habakkuk 1, verses 1 to 4. You can follow along with me if you like. This is the message that the prophet Habakkuk received in a vision. How long, O Lord? Must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to fight and argue. The law has become paralyzed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. The word of the Lord. Habakkuk is a prophetic book, but it's quite different from other prophetic books. So to start, the book of Habakkuk actually opens like a lament psalm. So there's around 65 lament psalms in the book of Psalms which is about half of the book, and many of them use the same phrase that Habakkuk opens with. 
How long, O oh Lord? How long? Habakkuk's lament gives voice to those living in dark days. Habakkuk is living in days that are making him question how he can believe in a God of justice and peace. And he brings this complaint to God. And this is actually the primary concern of the book. How can you maintain a belief in a God of justice in the face of an unjust world? And this morning I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book. And then I want to look at uh, Habakkuk's five woes, which are in the second chapter. And then to close, we're going to touch on a, one of the most quoted verses from Habakkuk, which is Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous will live by faith. First, the literary structure of Habakkuk is pretty simple. So the book is only three chapters, um, and this is how it reads, so we can keep this up. Um, it starts with Habakkuk's lament, which we just read, and that's Habakkuk 1, 1 to 4. After this, God responds to Habakkuk in 1, 5 to 11. And then Habakkuk laments God's response. He's not happy with God's response, so he laments again. And this is Habakkuk 1, uh, 12 to 2, verse 1. Then God responds again after this uh, in Habakkuk 2, verses 2 to 20. And then, remarkably actually, Habakkuk sings a prayer of praise. And that's what Habakkuk chapter three is. And one of the first things that you notice about Habakkuk is unlike the other prophets, he never actually addresses Israel directly. So he speaks on behalf of Israel. He represents Israel before God. But the whole book is a conversation between Habakkuk and God. It's almost like we're reading his prayer journal. We get an inside look at his conversation with God. And so the book opens with this lament, which we've already read. How long, O Lord? Where are you, God? What are you doing to make things right? There's no justice. God responds to this by saying, I see what you're saying, Habakkuk, but don't worry, I'm sending the Babylonians to teach Israel a lesson. Habakkuk fires back at this. Hold on, God. You're sending and using an evil nation like Babylon to teach us a lesson? That hardly seems fair. Babylon's way worse than us. How is this possible? How is this your plan? God responds by saying, while he will use Babylon to accomplish his purposes. It doesn't mean he endorses them or their practices. God condemns the practices of the Babylonians and any like them, and he says sorrow is what awaits their actions. God goes on to say that the humble, the righteous, will have to live with a longer term vision than the proud. And just a quick note on this language. Um, throughout scripture, these words get contrasted. So Old and New Testament, um, the righteous and the wicked are compared. The humble and the proud are compared. The wise and the foolish are compared. Jesus also used these comparisons. Um, like Jenna taught us about the wise and, and foolish builders a couple weeks ago. And I find it helpful when I'm reading scripture just to think of these things as connected, as kind of the same thing. 
So the Babylonians are proud, they're arrogant, and that means that they're short-sighted and foolish. So they seek instant gratification, they want rewards right away, but God says to Habakkuk, just wait, wait and see what will come of them, because their own plans will eventually bring destruction. Now in contrast, the humble or the righteous person can live by faith with a longer term vision of things. So living by faith, and the faith is in a God of justice, a God who actually opposes evil. Now let me read it. Um, Oh, after this, Habakkuk's response is profound because the book ends in a totally different place than it started, right? We started with lament and it ends with praise. Let me read uh, just from the last chapter, chapter three, 17 to 19, just so you can see how much it changes. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. So this is, in some sense, the power of prayer or the power of having an honest conversation with God. And you notice how, at the end, Habakkuk's circumstances haven't changed. His honesty also hasn't changed. There's still no grapes on the vine. The field is still empty and barren. But yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Now next week, we're gonna focus on this and how this shift actually occurred in Habakkuk and what we can learn from his conversation with God. But you'll have to come back next week if you wanna hear about that. For now, I wanna focus on a particular section. It's uh, chapter two, verses six to 19. And this section contains the five woes of Habakkuk. And these are God's woes spoken over Babylon and nations that follow their example. This is how the Bible Project outlines the five woes. Um, If you want a good video, you can watch their intro. They always make those great intro videos. Gives you a good sense of what the book is all about. Um, But one and two have to do with unjust economic practices or extortion. So this is um, the people with wealth are overtaxing or overcharging interest and getting rich, becoming, uh, getting profit off of uh, people who are barely making it by. And God opposes these things. The third is uh, inhumane labor practices or slave labor, treating people like, like animals, not giving them a chance to, to be human, not giving them dignity. Uh, God opposes this. The fourth is irresponsible leadership. This is a self-indulgent leadership. The leaders who were called to lead um, were indulging themselves rather than actually serving the people that they were called to lead. And God opposes that as well. And finally is idolatry. And uh, Tim Mackey says, uh, the idolatry of the Babylonians has to do with money, power, and nationalism. These are their gods. And they've replaced uh, God Yahweh with these things. So these are really dark days, right? 
And these are the days that Habakkuk was living in. God opposes these practices and ultimately will judge these practices. These practices are things that God sets himself against. And that's actually good news. It's really good news that God stands against all the fractures of evil in the world that he made good. And this is a part of the hope that can be found in dark days. But one of the big questions that arises from this is why then is God doing nothing to stop this? These were the problems of Habakkuk's day, and they're still happening today in our world. All of these issues are still major issues. And even after Jesus, um, even after Jesus, these things are allowed to continue. And God is still not directly intervening and putting a stop to evil things like this. But I want you to notice what it says in Habakkuk 2, verse 3. God says this to Habakkuk, this vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. God is delaying his final judgment of evil until the end, until the last day, but it will come. Evil won't be allowed to persist in God's world forever. The day's gonna come when God does act and when God says enough and he banishes evil from his good world. And this revelation is what leads Habakkuk into a humble response because he says this to God in prayer. In your anger, remember mercy. Habakkuk 3.2. And it seems to me like in this moment, humility is overcoming Habakkuk. And he realized maybe he wasn't as anxious for God to judge evil as he thought, because maybe there was still some evil left within him that needed to be dealt with. And the apostle Peter spoke about God's final judgment and the day of the Lord, and this is what he said in 2 Peter 3 verse nine. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, and this promise is to judge evil, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So Habakkuk finds hope in dark days by remembering both that God is a God of justice, and he will not let evil have the last word, but he also remembers that God is merciful patient, kind, forgiving, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so that's the reason for the delay. That's the reason evil is allowed to persist even until today. And in the middle of all this, living in days where justice is restricted and evil has been allowed to dominate, God says that there is a way for the righteous to live in these days but the righteous will live by faith. And I don't think we can actually understand what this verse means without Jesus. Because this verse is about Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one. So let's go back to the, this slide for a moment. Uh, with the, uh, 
the righteous and the, the wicked. I think I have it on there. Yeah. Um, have any of us, we can ask the question, have any of us lived a life without pride, foolishness, or wickedness? And I think part of the polarization and the division in our culture today is that we've become convinced of our own rightness or our own righteousness. So I can judge and criticize and condemn people on the other side of the argument than me because I know I'm right. But this isn't what Jesus taught us. We do actually have rightness and righteousness before God, right? But it doesn't originate within us. It originates from the Holy Spirit that Jesus has shared with us. And so I think this is one of the major temptations of living in dark days. It's to position ourselves as the judge. And this is exactly, I think, what's happening in our culture right now. People are crying out for justice, but they're doing it without reference to God. And when God is removed from the story, my cry for justice almost immediately becomes my right to judge. I'm just going to say that again. When God's removed from the story, my cry for justice almost immediately becomes my right to judge. Because if God is absent from the story, there's no one coming to hold evil accountable. I have to hold evil accountable myself. And so we locate evil as a problem that exists in people on the other side of the argument. And then we say it's our job to hold them accountable. We do have to take a stand against evil. We do have to oppose evil. That's true. But Jesus taught us very clearly not to take judgment into our own hands. And Jesus doesn't say don't judge because there is no right or wrong so people can do whatever they want and God doesn't care. He teaches us not to judge because we don't have the qualifications <laughs> to be doing that. We're not qualified to judge because the same evil that we point to in others actually exists within us as well. And man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So Jesus confronts and contends with evil without ever writing the last word on anyone's life, even the people who crucified him. And he doesn't get trapped in the cycle of accusation and judgment that we often do. And so this is the trap of living in dark days. It's taking judgment into our own hands and believing the lie that it's our job to hold evil accountable because God isn't going to do it. And this fuels accusation and division. This was captured really well in the movie Machine Gun Preacher. <laughs> Has anyone ever, I'm not endorsing it, okay? So don't, but has anyone ever seen it? Maybe, maybe not. Gerard Butler, you know, he's pretty good. It's a pretty good movie. It's based on, it's actually based on a true story. Uh, the guy, it, it's based on, he was named Sam Childers. And so Sam was a biker. He was a criminal, uh, but he gets out of jail and discovers that his wife has found Jesus and at first he's very angry about this because she's not doing what, what she normally would be to make money. Um, 
But eventually he finds Jesus as well, actually, and he has like a pretty radical conversion. Um, And he ends up going on all these missions trips to Africa, building schools, building orphanages, doing doing development work, right? And, um, but it was all right in the heart of what was happening with the child soldiers. Does anyone remember like Coney, Coney 2010? Was that 2010? 2012, sorry, thanks Molly. Coney 2012, it was like that, the child soldiers, it was that time. Um, and so they're opening orphanages, but the children keep getting stolen and forced to be soldiers. It's terrible evil, right? It's a horrific situation. And Sam, he can't sit by and watch it anymore. So finally he grabs a machine gun. He becomes the machine gun preacher, right? He takes ju- but he takes justice into his own hands, right? He becomes the judge. And the cycle of killing and violence is continued, just like how it always is. And no real justice gets found. And no real peace comes. It's really sad to watch. But I want to contrast this with Jesus, I want you to hear these words about Jesus from 1 Peter 2, verse 22. You can turn there with me if you want. I think we have it on the screen. I'll start in verse 22. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. This is saying Jesus was the righteous one. He was the one who could have taken judgment into his own hands. But instead, verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see how Jesus is the one Habakkuk prophesied about? Jesus was the righteous one. He lived by faith that God would judge justly. That's what this verse is saying. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus doesn't just suspend his right to judge. He takes on himself all the judgment that we hurl at him and all the judgment that we deserve. Jesus believed that evil would not get the last word. He believed and trusted that God would. And so Jesus sets us free from the endless cycle of accusation because he doesn't accuse us. Friends, Jesus does not accuse you this morning. And this grace, the gift of not being accused, even though we deserve it, is the very thing that leads us to repentance. Because Jesus receives us as we are, and then he shares his righteousness with us. He puts his spirit in us, and this spirit leads us to become people of humility, wisdom, and righteousness. People who can be set apart from division and hostility. And this is what our world needs so desperately in these days. Not more accusation, not more noise, but people who have encountered a God of justice and mercy. People who have tasted God's mercy for ourselves and can extend it to others, even to enemies, even to those who oppose us, even to those who disagree with us.
only when we truly understand what Jesus has done for us can we be people who can join the words of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights, just like Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources to help further your study throughout the week, you can go to vbchurch.ca forward slash sermons.